Today, we devote the next half hour to theology. And a little something extra you didn't expect. This is Lanyap Theology. Hey, welcome back to Lanyap Theology. I'm Dr. Dave Delio from the University of Holy Cross. And I'm Professor Todd Amick. And we are glad to be with you. This is our penultimate episode. Which means second to last. Second to last, right. But I wanted to use a big word. I'm <laughs> really into big words these days. Um, and we are um, we, we're going to be launching into, in a sense, a new direction. But, in, but at the same time, we're going to be tying it all back together in these last two episodes. Um, we finished last uh, last week with talking about kind of how the world and and how Jesus, in a sense, is the answer to what we discover in the world. But we're, today we're going to go a little bit into um, kind of how does the church affirm and what are they what are we affirming when we say that Jesus was both God and man? And then we want to talk about uh, on the on kind of the bottom half of the show. Um, what are the implications? Right. And just to give a bit of a recap, the the format, the way we've approached Lanyap theology has been we've we've started with John chapter three verse sixteen, and we've grounded each one of the central concepts in the Christian tradition, the Catholic tradition, and then in a contemporary or a modern understanding, and we've brought those into dialogue with each other. Right. Telling so funny stories and doing fun things along. The way. Right. So as we as we we approach now the Son, we're going to go ahead and, and revisit. John John 3.16, just to reorient ourselves, and then Dave's going to help guide us through the tradition. John chapter 3, verse 16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And what we're going to do today is we're going to look at Son. We're going to look at the central concept of Son that ties everything together. And then for our very last show, we're going to talk about what this eternal life is, what the difference is between perishing and a perishing that we experience starting here and then into eternity, and ultimately what that eternal life is, an eternal life that begins now. Right, so we that, begin with the Son. That Jesus really opens up for us. I mean, it, Jesus is the one who inaugurates our full ability to participate in the eternal life of God. And it's, it's miraculous is not, that doesn't even cover what, you know, in other words, I, I think when Paul talks about the, you know, the creation is groaning and in other words, it is longing for something. There's a deep desire in every human heart to find fulfillment. And Jesus is the fulfillment of it. But how do we, how do we understand this word, the Son, the Son of God? How does God, in a sense, have a Son? And there's a million ways to go about it, millions of books. I mean, the Church has talked about this since day one. But there's two spots that I want to focus on that I think are very important for us as Christians to know, because there's two central questions that happened 1,700 years ago almost. And the first question that the church really had to combat was, so is Jesus divine? In other words, is he a divine son, or was he just a specially chosen kind of prophet or person marked off by God to announce the kingdom of God, but he's still just a regular guy? Or of which there were many in the Old Testament. Right. Absolutely. And bridging to the new with John the Baptist. Special Absolutely. humans given a special task. That's right. And so... Um, 
and, and that's not to belittle the what, what we call the Arian controversy. And Arius was a uh, was a priest uh, who, in his deep reading of Scripture, he, he arrived at the conclusion, or at least he raised the question. You know, maybe Jesus isn't really God. Like he's the highest; he's as high as you can get, but he's still not God. And that set off a firestorm in around the year three twenty four, three twenty five, and it engulfed the church in a you know almost a century long battle, um, it, it, more than a century, over who was Jesus really. And it comes no surprise that the the reason why the church started to really debate it and argue it was that was it happened within about ten or twelve years after Christianity became legal in the Roman Empire. Prior to that, the first three hundred years, we were a martyr church. We were a hidden church. So we we would preach and we would evangelize, but we would also pay the price in blood. So we we, we were a martyred church. We know. A lot of people think Christianity came out strong and, and was kind of subjugating and, and, you know, bringing the faith by force, and that's just not true. The history of Christianity is we began as a church on the cross. And in the year 300, Constantine, uh, 300 and actually 12, Constantine legalized, at least allowed Christians to open, openly worship, and it's slowly progressed that Christianity became the center religious tradition of the Roman Empire. So with the first major time without public prosecution, there's an opportunity now for public debate. Right. And, and, and what's important about that, just think about this in your own personal life. If you're working hard every day, you're working 70, 80 hours a week, you're probably not coming home every night and cracking open, uh, you know, Tolstoy's War and Peace as your, uh, you know, your light read in the evening. You're probably watching a movie or you're just, you're, you're watching golf or a sport, just kind of getting your mind off work. Well, I want you to under, you know, I want you to think about that. You have to, to be able to think, to be able to debate, to be able to kind of ponder what, where do we go next? You got to have quiet time. That's why we take vacations, right? Think about how many books get read on vacations. People plow through novels and, you know, they'll get a Grisham novel or they'll get something and, you know, they'll spend that week reading it and totally enjoy it. They'll be lost in those, in that time because they're not working. They're sitting by the beach. The kids are playing in the water enjoying themselves. And just like with the scenario that you just that you just offered, which is that we have experiences, we have fundamental beliefs, but without that time of, of recreation, of leisure to be able to reflect upon them, we're sometimes not as deeply aware of them. Just like that in the life of the church, these fundamental beliefs Bingo. were always there, Bingo. except they weren't able to then be reflected upon in a systematic way right. and recorded to be able to be shared with others. That's right. That's right. I mean, and then it, all of a sudden, Persecution stops at least for a bit of a window there, right. and the public aspect begins. Right, and then and right now the church has can actually openly begin to discuss these problems, and and the problems were brewing a long time before what happened in three twenty five. So, but you know, history and circumstance matter. So, what happens is is basically the question gets a you know, is Jesus the Son of God? Is he really God then, or is he just kind of like is he like high up there, just like, but he's not really. And that be that that really kind of made the church come together, and we had the Council of Nicaea in 325, in which they coined a whole new term. I mean, it's the a first you know kind of a, a word in philosophy that in theology that uh, you know is one of a kind, which is the word homoousios, which means one in consubstantial or one in being. 
And that meant that the Son and the Father are the same in being, which now then forced the church to say, well, then what is the Father and what is the Son? Right. And so they had to then kind of get into the kind of idea of these are the persons of God. And a person is not the same thing as the nature of God. Because the church understands there's a unity in God, there's one God, right. but then all of a sudden there's this, this dimension of multiplicity where, okay, well, the Father is God, the Son is of one substance, so the Son is also God. Right. How do we reconcile these? That's right. And because they're staying true to Scripture, they're staying true to the Jewish faith that they that at least the first, the apostolic generation had handed down, which is God revealed himself as one. I mean, it, it, you know, in, um, in Deuteronomy 6, 4, you know, what they call the Shema, which is, you know, Hero Israel, the Lord God is one. The Christian faith never, ever backed away from that. It's the prayer fundamental to Israel, the Shema Yisrael, and it's also a place where Benedict in his reflections on divine love goes. Right. Because he says that it's the, the Christian, it's the, the Christian church, it's the, the church of Christ that then inherits this fundamental belief from, you know, from our forefathers in the faith and drives deeper into that with the revelation of Jesus Christ. Right. So... So now that Jesus is kind of established, the, the, the church is, again, reflecting on Scripture, reflecting on the debates, it declares Jesus is God. And uh, if you read the original document of Nicaea, though, it's very funny because, you know, they, they basically lay out what, what, we, what we recite every Sunday in the Creed. But the first one, it just, the last line just says, and the Holy Spirit. <laughs> because, you know, that they're like, we don't even have to do with this guy. You know, I mean, like, we know he's divine, too, because Jesus says, I'm sending you my advocate. But the church then waited another about a little less than 60 years, so the Council of Constantinople is where really the divinity of the Spirit was affirmed. And that's where we get the clause in the creed, you know, uh, we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, you know. And understand the church in light of the third divine person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. So, but for our purposes today, what we wanted to kind of leave with is— there came another council about 70 years later in 451 called the Council of Chalcedon. And that was where they, so if the church established the divinity of Christ, they then had to say, well, let's, how do we understand the humanity of Christ? And how does the humanity and the divinity connect? You know, how is Jesus both fully human and fully divine all at the same time? How are these two truths held in tension without compromising either? That's right. And and, and that, that was a long series of debates. And the, I think the first key to it, though, for us really understanding Jesus' humanity was we had to understand Mary's humanity. And so at the Council of Ephesus in 431, the Church declared that Mary was Theotokos, which is the God-bearer. And that's an interesting because a lot of people wanted her to be the Christo bearer, so the bearer of Christ, in other words, focusing more on the humanity. But what was interesting is, is that Mary gives us the key to understand how God and human are, in a sense, distinct, okay, but in, the some, in somehow brought together. And um, so it was very, it was, it was essential that the church got Mary right, uh, then it could really get the humanity of Jesus right. And what the church settled on, and really this was um, through the guidance of Pope Leo the Great, was that Jesus is both divine and human, so they have a, he has a human nature, just like ours, and a divine nature, which is all spiritual, uh, all powerful, all knowing. And it, it, in a, they, they come together through the person of Jesus Christ. So, so his personhood is divine. 
So our personhood, so, you know, Todd, me and you, we're human beings, so we have a human nature, but we're human persons. Human persons, I'm going to say, for, for lack of a, for in a, in a shorthand, is we're, we're in the image of God. Okay, it's what makes us, in a sense, unique, but relatable, communicable, and all these other things. Jesus is not a human person, and that's where a lot of people, my students are like, what? He's not? I said, he's a human being. But he, his divine personhood is so special and so unique that it allows, it can, it's, it's wide and expansive, and it can allow his full humanity to be right alongside his full divinity. And doesn't lessen that humanity at all. That's right. So, fully God and fully, fully human. Right. So Jesus has a real human body with real blood, and, and you know, he cries, as we see in the Gospel of John. He, he feels things. He gets angry. That's all human, right? That's not a show. It's not like, it's not being fake. He's not doing that for us. He's doing that because he's really a man. At the same time, he knows who he is and what he's about and what he is supposed to be doing as God. The only way that those two can come, you can't just, it's not like a sandwich. You can't bring the two together. The, 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 the beautifulness of his divine personhood is what allows the humanity and divinity to come together. And that is, in a sense, how we get to know or, or be sure of who Christ is. Right, and one of what really interesting aspect there is that because his divine personhood helps to reveal his, his humanity, also then our humanity is revealed the closer we are to God. That's great. And on the back end of this hard break, we're going to be looking at, at Christ within the tradition and also bring that into dialogue with the contemporary or modern understanding of Christ. Hello, friends of Catholic Community Radio. This is Dr. Dave Delio from the University of Holy Cross. You may have heard me Thursday mornings on Wake Up. I wanted to take a moment to tell you about some exciting opportunities to study theology at the largest undergraduate program in the region. We offer a bachelor's degree in theology with a minor in philosophy or a concentration in religious education. We also offer a Master of Arts in Catholic Theology designed for those who want to build the domestic church or to incorporate theology into their professional lives. Our classes are available both in person and online. We believe theology is done best face-to-face and at your own pace. Our programs not only offer Catholic truth, but prepare you to serve the church, your family, or pursue a variety of careers. If you have any questions, please visit our website at uhcno.edu. If you would like to contact me, please call 504-398-2122 or email me at ddelio at uhcno.edu. Hey, we're back. It's Landing Up Theology. I'm Dr. Dave Delio here with uh, my good buddy Todd Amick, and we are um, we were just finishing up talking about kind of how the church had to arrive at and come to a doctrine. You can see how, in a sense, doctrines develop. It took a long time. The church had to argue, meditate on the Scripture, take on all comers, listen to all sides. And then there's this wisdom. And when I, when I say the wisdom of the church, it's both, again, human and divine. The Holy Spirit is kind of the pilot of the whole thing, and we are the vessel. Okay, so when we, when we arrive at church doctrines, we can be sure— Okay, that they have the full bearing of, of revealed truth as much as anything that's in the Bible, because it's coming from the Bible, but it's also coming from the practices, the discussions, the liturgy, the life of the Church. And so when we affirm that Jesus is both human and divine, and it's united in his personhood, and that's so that's what makes him both totally the same as us, but there's a unique difference in his divine personhood, um, 
you know, then we can rest assured, okay, this is, and that's what makes it, you know, it's not, it's not a dry point. It actually is, the more you understand it, the more unique and, the more unique you understand who Jesus is and compared to any other world religious figure, that he's not a religious figure like even a Moses, even a Buddha, even a Muhammad, because he is God at the same time. In his personhood, all of them, Muhammad, Buddha, Moses, um, Zarathustra, they are all human persons with human nature. Jesus is a human, has a human nature within a divine person, and therefore the, his divine nature is connected to it. So with that, Todd, you know, you had, we were talking in the break, you had some ideas on kind of how, how do we make this relevant? How do we, how do we make this kind of come, come and reach, uh, you know, reach the shores of our own actual everyday lives? Sure. Well, I, I, think, I think just this process and reflecting historically teaches us something about the, the, the way that we ourselves reflect on mystery. You know, you experience something that's bigger than yourself, you know, such as, say, the birth of a child, you know, and not just that one moment where your child kind of erupts into the world and this whole dynamic of, of, of now, I knew I was a daddy for nine months, but now I see this face-to-face happens. Right. But going to the hospital, you know, the, the challenges, the questions, the every element of this um, coming together in the birth of a child, and then often it takes kind of this experience and also stepping back and reflecting on it to realize, oh, wow, that's what that is. Mm-hmm. You know, this is what love looks like. This is a love that kind of redefines everything else. You know, you experience that love, say, in a child, and then you, you, you look at your wife and you say, like, you gave her to me. Right. You know, this, this, it's not as if this love that seems to now eclipse everything, the love of a child, diminishes the love for a spouse. What it does is it, it kind of reinvigorates it where then you say, okay, well, wait a minute. You know, if, if this is what this love is supposed to look like without, you know, with, with completely giving oneself, you know, in this communion here, then I'm supposed to love you all the more. Right. You know, so, so as we reflect upon experience, we drive deeper into it. It doesn't diminish it. We don't create it, but we begin to realize it. What we see in the history of the church is this wrestling, this struggling with God's revealing drives us deeper, not only into knowledge of God, but into communion with God. Right. And Benedict XVI in, in his encyclical Deus Caritas Est, which forms the centerpiece of, of my, my dissertation, talks about the way that, that we're to understand the love of God in the divine Son, you know, who is, who is human, right, with human nature, Jesus Christ. That as we gaze upon the pure side of Christ, if we know that God is everything that God is, pure spirit, you know, God is, is um, uh, you know, completely perfect in every way, there's nothing that can be added to God, and yet this God has drawn near to us, and in a way, not, not, not in a way that, that magnifies his, his magnificence and his glory in the way that human eyes would, would think that it would, you know, through human power, through regality, but instead in the, the, the womb of, as we were talking before, Theotokos, Miriam of Nazareth, that God becomes an embryo you know, in the womb of one of his own creatures and invites us into that. And as we then experience all of the miracles of Christ, you know, in the historical record, in sacred scripture, in the life of the church, and see all the ways that God reveals God's love, we then realize that this is a God who gives God's self on the cross for each and every one of us. You know, I was thinking, this may be an inappropriate analogy, but I was thinking that it's the exact opposite if you've ever seen the movie Aliens, mm-hmm. how like the aliens use the human host to come and like actually wreak havoc on the world. Right. 
And it's like, you know, it's like, I wonder if Hollywood could ever tell a story as good as what the gospel actually does proclaim. The best we can come up with is like, you know, aliens that have like hydrochloric acid in their, you know, in their pumping through their veins. Um, But just the way you kind of described it made me think about, you know, even in our own human imaginations, we can't think of something like that and because it is the story right and there's and you know i and a lot of people say well there this happened like that there's virgin births all over world literature and i said yeah but not this way mm-hmm. not that makes the same claim fully human fully divine they'll say a god pops out you know a lesser god or something like that would would pop or out in greek world. mythology erupting from the head of a titan or right, something like right. this but, but this is not the same this is allowing humanity to be humanity and Mary, also Mary. El- elucidating this, you know, unlocking the potential that is there right. of humans to be truly human, which is to say to love ultimately the way that God loves. That's right. You know, and this this understanding that we've explored, which is that Jesus is fully God, so, so God remains fully God, but also fully human, kind of brings us to the contemporary discussion where we say, okay, well, what, when, when we say Jesus, you know, what do people think? And I think two kind of key ways to be able to look um, at this question today and to be able to see the significance and to be able to then appeal to the tradition, but to see what the real fruit of today is, is that within the tradition, we struggled with this question, but it seems like in many cases today, we're not struggling because we kind of either keep Jesus at a distance, the way we talked about moralistic therapeutic deism, that God is a God at a distance, you know, or what we think of is we think of Jesus as, well, well, he's our buddy, and emphasizes humanity to the exclusion of his divinity. And in a certain sense, we take the Council of Chalcedon, and we, we split Jesus apart again. Right. We deny either his divinity or his humanity. Right. And in that process, we lose something profound and real about who God is. Right. Benedict says that Jesus realizes, realizes the love of God. And as we reflected before, we saw that God's love, which is translated in the, the, the Nuova Volgata as caritas, God is caritas, he is charity, that Benedict's project in his thesis is that that charity has an essential dimension of eros, an eros that begins in God, that, that, that is a, a possessive love, a desiring love, but that doesn't come from the way that we desire because of a lack, but instead comes from the superabundance of God's love. And that that eros, as we reflect on divine love, and as we've done certainly throughout this series, we see that it's a love that in a certain sense moves in ecstasy. In a certain sense, it moves God outside of God's self, the God who then intervenes in human history, a history which he begins with creation and invites his creatures back with all of these favored people we talked about, you know, all of the prophets, Hosea and Ezekiel, you know, St. Moses, St. David, you know, as, as they're referred to in the Eastern tradition, drawing them back. And then ultimately in the fullness of time, God reveals God's eros, this, this possessive love that desires a communion with the other, not for the good of God, but for the good of us as creatures in his own son. So in Christ himself, as we look at, at, at the Son hanging upon the cross, this, this image that Benedict says is the beginning of our reflection on divine love, we see his pierced side, which is the, the image of the church, and we'll talk about that in just a moment. But what we see is that if, if eros results in communion, which it does, the, the desiring, the possessive love we have in a romantic relation results in a Mr. and Mrs., you know, as its ultimate expression. It results in the communion that is fruitful with children also, and it results in a relation from greater to lesser, from, from equals also, 
which is, affects a, a communion, which affects an abidance, which reflects a, a, a harmony, but it also invites a return. God reveals that love and eros in Christ, where God and man and human unite in such a way that, that what was fractured, what was broken once through sin, is now made whole in his son. And it is the same Christ who then has the abidance with us as persons, right? He actually abides with us, the logos, the eternal reason that we talked about before. We don't lose that wisdom, comes and abides with us so that we can abide with Christ and in that abide with God. And it's the same Christ then who reveals God's own perfect love by giving God's self. In this case, Christ gives himself as an expiation for our sins, as a sacrifice for our sins. This is the same Christ that, that, you know, that, that his followers and we in the church see. It's like, wait a minute, you raised Lazarus from the dead. You know, you're, you're, you have the power. You could have smote all these Romans here. You know, you could have affected the worldly, you know, the worldly, you could have done any of this. And yet you give yourself in humility, washing the feet, you know, giving parables that reveal the love of a God who seeks after his creatures, who bolts, who runs after right. his, his, own, his own children. And now you're hanging upon a cross. And from the side of Christ then comes blood and water. You know, which is understood as the birth of the church in these two fundamental sac- uh, sacraments, the first of which is baptism. You know, water washes over us, makes us whole in Christ, something we couldn't do on our own power, on our own strength. Right. And in the blood is seen the Eucharist. Right. That what God gave as nourishment now becomes, now becomes a, a sacramental bread that truly allows us to love the way that God loves. You know, um, I believe it was um, the rabbi, uh, Abraham Heschel, who has a book that I always start and I never finish, and it's called God in Search of Man. And I bought the book because of just the title alone. And I think that, you know, it, I think he's passed on now, but it would have been amazing to have to have had, I, he was a very ecumenically minded um, he was really a voice of a generation for Jewish um, for Jewish thought, but I think what he's talking about is what Christians would say. But we are talking about too. We just we know it. We, like he found us, and he found us, and and the, God's not searching for us anymore. It's Jesus is here. Jesus came. He he did it. And, you know, it, I think the two things you were saying, too, that really struck me was that Jesus, you know, when we, we, we love to talk about his sacrifice and sacrifice on the cross, and it's so central to understanding who Jesus was and his under, understanding our faith. And yet, the, it's like you can't talk about sacrifice without talking about love. So it's not just a selfless act. I mean, there's this deep love from which the sacrifice rises. You can, but it's self-deprecating if you do. Yeah. Sacrifice well, without nowhere. love is, yeah, right. yeah, yeah, it's it's purposeless. Yeah. And that's often the way we look at, at suffering. Instead of right. realizing that God has revealed what true sacrifice is, that it's united. Truth and love are united and cannot be separated that's ultimately. Right. That's right. And that in that process, we then realize, okay, Christ hanging there, if I reflect, if I back up and realize this is God, then I realize God is that in love with me. And it's not something pithy, like we can say in a formula, bam, we're done. We begin with the formulas, but we have to reflect upon them to realize this is what divine love looks like. Right. But that second dimension is essential too, which is 
God so loved us that he gave his only begotten son, which is to say he assumes a human nature. He becomes one of us. Right. So that ultimately the communion experienced in the person of Christ, divine and human, becomes our communion as well. That's right. We in Christ and in the life of the church then enter into the mystery of God. So... And I think we're going to continue this discussion into kind of next week. Um, we're not done with talking about Jesus and the importance of what his sacrifice and then on the cross and then his resurrection means for our eternal life, because that's really the point of what the what we're talking about with this, with John 3.16. So um, stick with us. Uh, we're going to be moving to our last episode next week, talking about um, what does it mean for us to look forward to eternal life in Christ. I'm Dr. Dave Delio with the University of Holy Cross. I'm Professor Todd Amick. And we are Lanyap Theology. Lanyap Theology is a production of Catholic Community Radio.